1: and I remember that particularly ostentatious vehicle. Uh, the American collectors are back in Italy. In a place of beauty. Buy it back. Offer them more money. In a time of uncertainty... Why shouldn't Mussolini have an empire? All the best people in Europe have empires. They were the most arrogant... Drink up because the champagne's on me. i bathe in the stuff to celebrate her departure. Why, Hester, I didn't see you there. The most obstinate and colorful women in Italy... Why should we change our lives simply because some idiots want to make war?
0: They were known in Florence as the Scorpioni.
1: Scorpioni? Why? Because they bite. Not me, they tried, but no more. (laughs) Luca. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast sustaining themselves on a diet of coffee, hot dogs, muffins, and Patty Clarkson's bucket hats. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with the something inside me saying, I really don't think I'm strong enough, Joe Reed.
0: That makes me sound like I am your uh, inner saboteur, and I don't like that dynamic that we've set up. <laughs> I want to just say buongiorno to you because we are once again in uh, sunny Italy for this uh, episode. Um, what
1: what is the opposite of the bella bambina, eh, hey, bella bambina thing? Because they don't. It's a, This is a movie led by women, but they are all like circling a young man what's
0: the italian for old uh i uh what whatever uh vieja is in uh, italian vieja bambina um
1: just because they are women of a certain age doesn't make them not bella bambina no i'm not saying that at all but
0: it is sort of like uh uh the old lady gang to uh to crib a term from the real housewives of atlanta um it's. I read through some of the reviews for this movie, for Tea with Mussolini, um, before we started, and it was a real spectrum of uh, not not necessarily appreciation, but just like how sort of snide the critics were about that. Where like the Times review, the New York Times review, um, ultimately was like it's fun, but like was sort of like snarky about uh, the. The women cast in it and the LA Times. Well, I can
1: probably name you the three, uh, critics that were reviewing this movie in 1999 that were women. So. Oh,
0: well, except that, like, so the LA, the LA Times, which was Kevin Thomas, uh, Really liked it, seemingly, and then Lisa Schwartzbaum for Entertainment Weekly was so fucking mean about this movie and was just like absolutely ripped to shreds individually each of the major stars and was just like wow like Maggie Smith is a huge ham and Judy Dench is totally I love unsubtle the
1: shit out of a Lisa Schwartzbaum pan
0: though I I usually do when it deserves it but like I don't think yeah, this, this movie sounds, quite deserves it sounds like it was
1: a little mean to this it moment. was
0: like super mean to this movie and then it was just like. And Cher can't act and yada, 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 and the whole thing. And I was just like. That's insane. And, but it reminded me that, like, until Gosford Park came along, I do think, like, there was this reflex kind of um, snideness about the Maggie Smith, Joan Plowright sort of genre of actress, where, like, even when Judy Dench, because by this point, Judy Dench has been nominated for two Oscars and has won one of them. And. But, like, Judi Dench was still sort of shorthand for old British lady costume drama, you know. There's this odd little strain of, like, she took our jobs kind of a thing. It was just, like, coming over and, like, English actresses coming and stealing Oscars or whatever. And it's just, like, I still feel like Gosford Park might have been like a turnaround for that, where all of a sudden people liked that one so much that now people like the Maggie Smith vibe again. Whereas, like, this one, it was really kind of sneered at. Like, Ebert didn't like this movie anyway, but either, but like, he wasn't mean about it in the way that like Lisa Schwartzbaum was. And oof, it was tough. Go read that at some point, uh, if you wanna, because, uh,
1: yeah. Well, it's I was a rough one. at first I thought I wanted to because. I love a Schwartzbaum fan, but uh, not if she's going to be mean to these wonderful actresses that we love. She at
0: one point mentions the fact that uh, originally Vanessa Redgrave and Angela Lansbury were supposed to be in this movie, and then they were uh, replaced... Uh, after they both couldn't do it with Maggie Smith and Judy Dench and Lisa Schwartzbaum in the parenthetical just goes, apparently Eddie Izzard and Dame Edna weren't available. And I was just like, bitch, that is wow. so mean. But anyway. I the L.A. Times article was the one that basically took the sentiment of just like how many movies are you gonna get that has Cher, Maggie Smith, Joan Plowright, Judy Dench, and Lily Tomlin in it together? And that's exactly. basically my feeling about *You with Mussolini*. I think it's ultimately less than the sum of its parts. But like, what great parts? Like, what wonderful like uh, elements to have in this movie? And you don't get that every day. Yeah,
1: I think this is a really scattered movie. But yeah. I was I was very uh, pleased the whole time.
0: Yeah, I was happy. I'm happy it exists. I don't think it ultimately works all that well, and we'll definitely no. get into why I think that. But like, this is a movie where Cher sings "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes" and Joan Plow, or not Joan Plowright, but like Judy Dench runs in front of uh, a bunch of, of fascist Italian soldiers and like wraps herself up in in TNT wire so that they won't blow up a museum. Like, come on! Like, I love that shit. You want to watch that movie? Lily Tomlin wears what all I the found... pants. Lily Tomlin's character is essentially yes. trousers. Uh, they might they yep. might as well just the one call her with trousers the pants. because like that is her. Mm-hmm. She's just like she's a lesbian and she wears lady pants. trousers. And she's very tanned because she's an archaeologist, so she works in the you know in the sun baked uh, deserts and such. But uh, yeah, she is uh, lady pants.
1: <laughs> the thing that I found offensive about this movie. Uh huh. They didn't cast Eileen Atkins. The only dame from Tea with the Dames. The only dame from Tea with the Dames that is not there. Granted, (laughs) Tea with the Dames came out almost 20 years after this movie did. However... It should have had the foresight. It should have had the foresight to do that. Also, if you had just cast Eileen
0: Atkins as Mussolini, it would have been absolutely perfect. Because then it would have essentially been Tea with the Dame. Yes, Easy peasy. Like, come on. Yeah. Let's just do this.
1: Retroactive Tea with the Dames uh, prequel. Right, exactly. Who
0: needs that. Mussolini when you have Eileen Atkins? I know I would step to it in line a lot more readily for Eileen Atkins than I would for fucking Mussolini. So there's that. My opinion is that Mussolini was bad, is what I'm telling you.
1: Yep. And Eileen you know, Atkins is good. Um, cool. Noted dictators. Um, active in uh the world War two uh, axis um all pretty bad yeah pretty bad is what I'm gonna say not not great people not good not good not good which made me really confused at what this movie was <laughs> before um watching it the whole time like I'm so glad that we're finally doing this movie because it's this weird artifact there's not that many share movies it was one that I had never seen and it's like Kind of fallen off the face of the earth. It's
0: hard to come by, but, so we have like, to shout just out the
1: title "Tea with Mussolini." Yes. Oh, yes, we
0: have to shout out our wonderful, the, uh... wonderful dear friend Jordan Vellu, who like took it upon himself to acquire a uh, a copy of this film and sent it to us because he was that dedicated to us being able to see this movie and uh obviously jordan we love you and we thank you Ooh, we love you this one's for, for you buddy possible. yes exactly exactly um to the title though it's what it is a movie that like is a funny title it's a very well
1: i was like i knew that it was like some light-hearted Look at all of these actresses. Right. Kind of movie for like, shall we say, the best exotic marigold hotel audience. Enchanted April which I kind of, vibe. of that audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much that. But I was like, wait, am I supposed to be charmed that she's apparently having tea with a world dictator? Is that a good thing? Is this going to be one of those movies that's like, look at all these charming people who in real life were bad, but It's not. No, the movie sort of takes on head on. The title
0: is uh, a little um, not quite, yeah, cheeky, sort of rueful, sort of just like it's kind of rolling its eyes at the Maggie Smith character for having tea with Mussolini. I will say, watching this movie, I hate that I always have to do this, but like watching this movie and the times that we are living in, like it was a really rough time to watch a movie about like the creeping fascism of a you know once proud country kind of a thing and part of me did feel like sometimes i just want to watch a bunch of fancy ladies having tea and this is not the movie that we are ultimately getting ultimately this movie keeps making me think about um the ways in which we keep sort of like saying that fascism isn't coming and then fascism is all of a sudden here and i'm just like well damn it i don't want to have to think about that now (laughs) because i think about that now fucking enough let me tell you um so there was that but then then share would walk into a room and it's you know it's still share like fascism or no it is still uh we still still have we still have share yes exactly at the end of the world when uh when the MAGA people burn this country to the ground, we'll still have share somehow. So there's that.
1: Well, she she is our um, primary line of defense. She will bring <laughs> right. down all the MAGAs. It's what we'll,
0: uh, we'll get into. Even if she
1: has to work at a post office to
0: do it, <laughs> we'll we'll get into share for sure. But it was I had. Oh, I
1: got some things to say. I
0: had forgotten. For some reason, my mind put this movie earlier into the 90s than it was. It is a 1999 movie, and it's definitely after whatever plastic surgery procedures took her from the Mermaids era to the um, Believe era, even though I know that's movies and music uh, the but whatever. You know what I mean?
1: There's a lot colliding for Cher at this moment. She absolutely
0: had her teeth capped in between those two eras. And it definitely um I always say that like with like and again, I don't want to like linger on, you know, plastic surgery procedures for actresses, Hollywood. Let her do whatever actresses.
1: she wants. Yes.
0: But getting one's teeth capped changes the shape of one's face a lot more significantly, I think, than a lot of these other sort of like plastic surgery procedures that people talk about where you know lip fillers and and face lifts that sounds great thing. i want that um and i i cannot deny that like historical snaggletooth share was like i have a great affection for that like i have a great affection for um shares shares you know movie star face in that way um
1: absolutely
0: and so i definitely noticed that sort of right off the bat it's just like oh right this is like post uh post uh, capped teeth share but like she still fucking got it like that was the other thing is reading perusing those reviews and there was definitely i you forget the fact that like before believe came along people really had like Cher's reputation had really was really in an ebb at this point, where like Moonstruck was a long time ago. Um uh, even like the If I Could Turn Back Time, Mermaids sort of early nineties era was a long time ago. And now, for much of the nineties, she went from like infomercial share to then like almost entirely off of the map share. Like she wasn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. Sonny Bono had died Before this, I'm pretty sure. Now I want to look that up.
1: Yes, it kind of... uh, It's... The first thing that kind of really brings Cher back is if uh, these walls could talk, and then Sonny Sonny Bono dies shortly after that.
0: Right. Sonny Bono died in... uh, uh, 1998. January of 1998. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think that was the first time in a while that people... Cause like you're right about it. If these walls could talk, um, was definitely like a thing.
1: Who are the other major actresses? She's one of the Demi Moore, the other lead actresses. Yes, it was Sissy Spacek, Sissy Spacek and Demi Moore on the poster, right? And it, it shares portion that she was a, a supporting star in because it's three different chapters. She also directed it too. Yes,
0: it's it's uh, HBO produced. it's essentially an anthology movie about three stories with uh, women living in the same house. That was the conceit was just like different eras. Mm -hmm. These stories all sort of like take place in the same house or or around the same house. Um, But it's all about um, abortion was each story was about abortion. And if these walls could talk too, each story was about uh, lesbians. Um, But in, if these walls could talk, I don't really, I think the Sissy Spacek one is the earliest of the three, like time-wise, because they're in t- three different time periods. The Demi Moore one I remember watching and like being horrified by because she has a sort of back alley abortion and just like goes terribly, terribly long and it's very traumatizing oh, wow. to watch. And then the share portion is the most recent one and she plays a, a doctor who is providing
1: abortions. It got like the biggest ratings HBO had ever had.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that. Wow. For
1: for an original movie, yes.
0: Wow. Yeah, I definitely remember it having a lot of media attention at the time, for sure. So, yeah, so then that happened, and then the Sonny Bono funeral, where she gives the eulogy for Sonny Bono. And that was a lot there was a lot of obviously nostalgia around that, Sonny and Cher nostalgia, and just like sort of general um kind of Cher nostalgia. And that then, I think, was the most that anybody had really thought about Cher in quite a while. And then 1999 comes along, and... You- well,
1: 98, because that's when Believe drops.
0: Oh, Believe is 98. For some reason, I always I always uh, associate that with 1999 in the end of the... Uh-
1: well, it all kind of creates a blur, because ninety eight ninety eight Believe uh, drops. Global Sensation yeah shares everywhere again you have the behind the music of share yes the which next was Super a great the behind the music the share behind it the music was is an incredible like ur oh, um it's so good behind the music yes uh And, like, she gives a great interview. um, Yes. She always has. Like, that's the thing. It's just, like, she's a
0: fantastic interview no matter what. There are, like, iconic interviews with David Letterman she's given and the Jane Polly one that I watched a bit of just the other day where she gives the – my mom always said you should marry a rich man, and I said, "Mom, I am a rich man," which is like one of the great like share quotes of all
1: time. Um, the interview that she gave, explaining her tweets, while she still has an iPad in her hand, <laughs> and she explains what the what's going on with my career tweet was all about, which was essentially nothing. She just does. She's one of those people on Twitter with no filter. Yeah. it just like comes out naturally. Yeah. Um, Yes. Okay, so there's the behind the music the next Super Bowl she does the Star Spangled Banner which I had never seen Nor before I, preparing actually. for this episode and it's really great. Um and then it's Tea with Mussolini while she goes on the tour to support the Believe tour basically which right. is the tour before um the <laughs> Ceaseless Farewell tour. Right.
0: Right the the eternal uh, ship of lies that is the share farewell tour that uh she's never going away and we don't want her to so that's fine um yeah believe era share is when people really start buying into with good reason this notion that like share is eternal that like share will maybe go away for a while but she's always going to come back. She was there in the, you know, sixties and seventies and she won an Oscar in the eighties. And now it's the end of the nineties and it's the end of the millennium. And guess what, bitches? Like Cher is still here and she's Cher's topping still the charts. Global hits. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like the, the reach of believe. It's sometimes like you know, I always say, you know, we have to tell the children. And, like, the children know about Cher, but, like, I don't... You really did have to be there to experience just how widespread Belief was. Like, it was fucking everywhere. And it invented, um, uh, essentially, auto-tune. like, vocoder, autotune, like, stuff. Um, it, yeah, fully invented autotune for the masses. And, at the time that was very controversial at the time everybody was just like oh she can't sing so she's singing into a computer like yada yada, yada. and now of course we have like an entire like generation of auto-tuned uh, pop stars and whatnot and it was just a fucking bop is the other thing like that it's just like it's such an undeniable
1: yeah, it's believe, believe still a smash uh it's so good Fantastic karaoke
0: song, too. Like, everybody... You will never get to sing that song solo because everybody will sing it along with you. And that's the best kind of karaoke
1: song. We'll definitely get into some more share. I think... Because you mentioned that the reviews were unfair or mean to her. I think because, like, even with Believe being a huge smash, there was also kind of this meanness behind it like yeah i love this song but uh share like i wonder if it had if this movie had come out like even a year or six months later yeah. if some of the goodwill could have caught on more and the reviews wouldn't have been as mean yeah the reviews She's weren't all really mean good to in the movie. Her,
0: like the reviews were definitely meaner to maggie smith for sure um like even like ebert's review which was negative it was like a two-star review or whatever But he even still was just like we forget sometimes what a great actress she is, and like that was the point where Cher was in this, in her acting career especially, where like people had absolutely either forgotten Moonstruck or sort of wrote it off as a fluke. That's the other thing about Cher's career is all her successes eventually. people will retroactively say that they're fluky. You know, the 60s stuff was, mm-hmm. it was Sonny's influence. And, you know, the Sonny and Cher show was its own weird thing. And, like, by this point in 1999, people either had, like, forgotten about Moonstruck, because Moonstruck really has had, like, a revitalization in the last, I would say, oh, five or so it's years. It's been one
1: of the few joys of COVID that, like, everybody has gotten on the same page, that Moonstruck is a masterpiece and makes everyone happy when you put it and she
0: absolutely deserved the oscar there was definitely a time where people were just like share won an oscar like what were they thinking kind of a thing and over meryl streep and holly hunter she's amazing i've
1: said before if we gave that instead to holly hunter the upside is maybe share doesn't have an oscar but share does more movies that's very possible
0: um i love that oscar moment so much that i wouldn't trade it for anything but i get you also your ulterior motive is to give angela bassett an oscar for what's i've got to do with it and we cannot blame it you is. for that we can't blame
1: you for that okay it is anyway um anyway should we get into the 60 second plot description we, we of course have been sidetracked by share we are 20 minutes into the episode let's do it All right. So once again, guys, we're here to talk about Tea with Mussolini, directed and co-written by Franco Zaffarelli. We have like a legend uh, that we're talking about this week. Yes. Also co-written by John Mortimer uh starring share Maggie Smith, Joan Plowright, Judy Dench, Lily Tomlin and a bunch of other uh men that come and go throughout the movie. Uh the movie opened in late March of 1999 in Italy, waited until uh mid-May to open stateside to get that good uh, you know, counter programming dollars the week before The Phantom Menace. Wow, won. yeah, for
0: sure. What a year. Joseph.
1: Yes. You uh, have what we might say is an unenviable task of doing a 60 second plot description of Tea with Mussolini. There's a lot, weirdly a lot going on in this movie. Yes. So much going on. Yes. All right. If you're ready. Yes. And I hope you are. Your time starts now. Alright, picture it. Florence, 1935.
0: The drums of war are beating in the distance and Mussolini is making the trains run on time in Italy, which is good news at the moment for the Scorpioni, which is what they call the fancy English lady expats living in the city. Maggie Smith is the HBIC, while Judy Dench is the eccentric art connoisseur, and Joan Plowright is the sweet secretary to a local Italian son of a bitch who won't care for Luca, the orphan son he's fathered. So Plowright and a coterie of English grandies have all decided to pitch in and raise the boy themselves, also helping out a share an extroverted American millionaires who comes to Florence every now and then and knew Luca's mother and sets up a trust fund even as the boy's father ships him off to Nazi school in Vienna. Meanwhile, the fascists getting froggy in Florence, so Maggie Maggie Smith gets a meeting with Mussolini, who promises her that she and her rich lady friends won't be harmed by his jackbooted thugs. Cut to a few years later, though, and Itali- Italy declares war on Britain and France, and now all the fancy English ladies get rounded up into barracks by local authorities, and then they get upgraded to a fancy hotel prison, uh, which Maggie Smith thinks her pal Mussolini did it, but actually it's Cher and her money. Meanwhile, Luca's back looking like Jonathan Groff, and he's, missing, he's smitten with Mama Cher, even though she's dating a skeezy Italian lawyer, and it turns out that he's out to steal her fortune and turn her Jewish fabulousness over to the Gestapo. At first, jealous baby Luca does do anything about it until Joe Pilari tells him what time it is, and then Luca and the ladies and the Italian resistance sneak uh sneak share out of the country. And the boy grew up to be Franco Zeffirelli. It's a lot of plot. It's almost too much plot. It's almost For too me. much plot.
1: It is. It has that like this would be a miniseries feeling to it, and maybe it kind of should be, even though like. The temperature on this movie is pretty low throughout, so it's like, it's a somewhat of a jarring experience that it's like, it's never quite tense, it doesn't ever kind of build, but a lot is happening. Well, and it's also... skipping through, it's like skipping across years.
0: It has a dedication to remaining, a, you know, a little bit light and a little bit tender and beautiful which I appreciate like I don't I was not longing for this movie to end up you know with these women getting brutalized in you know this sort of semi prison uh, camp situation that they ended up in I didn't need to see uh, Judy Dench get shot by the brown shirts for this movie to you know land its, its gravity or whatever so I was happy about that but it does create a you know some kind of dissonance. We're just like it doesn't back away from the fact that this is World War II and terrible things are happening. But it also doesn't back away the fact from from the fact that it wants to be also about a movie about nice tea ladies. And it ultimately doesn't do a great job of reconciling that while also trying to get through so much of this plot. There's you know there's. Uh, Maggie Smith's nephew who is essentially uh dodging the draft from Britain by remaining in Florence with his grandmother her his, she's his grandmother or her his as aunt I can't remember but one of the things um and he ends up hiding out with them uh in a dress pretending to be one of the ladies and then ultimately like uh, can't take it anymore and he runs out to the italian resistance and tells them he's a man and he wants to fight with them and that's all well and good and like that's a whole subplot and then the lucas stuff which the other thing about this movie is it's autobiographical about franco zeffirelli to a degree i was not prepared for like when i went and like read his uh wikipedia bio a lot of this is right from his life where like orphaned, uh, child father was, uh, out of, you know, an out-of-wedlock child, uh, helped brought up by the Scorpioni, who were, you know, real-life British expat ladies in Florence at the time. Um, down to, like, the fact that, like, he ended up falling in with the Italian resistance and, like, then ended up hooking up with a group of Scottish soldiers and becoming their interpreter. Like, all of that is out of Zeffirelli's life. And so, like, there's a lot of focus on this Luca kid, who ends up being, you know, he's a little kid at the beginning in his little, like, you know, sailor suit kind of stuff. And Joan Plowright has this very sort of motherly bond with him, and so does Cher, but she's, you know, flighty and in and out and whatever, and then he comes back as a teenager, and... His sort of infatuation with Cher ends up making him make some bad choices, and then he makes mm-hmm. the right choices. And yet it's, so there's a lot about Luca in this who
1: a looks like Jonathan Groff. um <laughs> well, he's also really hard to track throughout the movie because, like I said, the movie like not jumps back and forth, but like it'll be nineteen forty for three minutes and then it'll be nineteen forty five. Like, you know, that type of thing. (laughs) And it's all played by different actors at each stage. So and they all look different. (laughs) And it's hard to it's a character that I couldn't get any type of grasp on whatsoever. Especially also because we really care more about Yeah the women. (laughs) Yes. You really
0: are just there's a lot about a lot of this movie is spent being like when is Cher coming back? Because she also, like, hey, she yeah. goes in and out of the movie and, like, whatever. And, like,
1: I think. Th- she's really not the lead of the movie. No.
0: M- more than anyone else, Joan Plowright is really the lead of the movie. And I think she's wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Joan Plowright was actually my favorite in this I movie. loved her. She's a wonderful, wonderful, warm, lovely character.
1: And uh, she does a really great job with it. But. She gets some of the more emotional stuff to deal with, too. Also,
0: the kid playing Luca
1: um, isn't. An-
0: great like i don't want to be like mean about it but like it's great the other the thing about i said he looks like jonathan groff but the other thing about luca is he looks almost like frighteningly like my a friend of mine who i like texted him later and i was just like i found your doppelganger in tea with mussolini and he's like what is that and i'm just like okay well go watch this movie and it's like it's uncanny how much this kid looks like uh looks like uh my friend Cole and it's just like wow it was freaking me out but it also made me really like him probably more than I would uh in a normal circumstance because normally like he's a frustrating kid when he's a teen and uh he's sort of you know kind of fucking share over because he's jealous of her with this uh uh Italian lawyer who was like the most obviously bad for share person like it's a very <laughs> It's this is a movie that is secretly about how Cher really shouldn't uh, ever want to get married because like the men in her life really the
1: Castorini's would not approve. Uh, ain't shit.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I think the movie not being as much about the ladies as it could be is a problem because it's taking away from the movie's greatest strength, which is that it has this amazing cast of women. Hmm. Um. But on the other hand, again, move the you know, it's not as great as the sum of its parts. But in their own individual scenes, like I loved Judy Dench as the like, uh, f- not quite flighty. She but basically she's
1: like, is playing the weird one, yeah. Kind of, or like it at least positions her at first as the weird. She's one, definitely she's like the weird one. Flowing scarves, yeah. and-, and and she has
0: ultimately she has you know great depths. and she loves the art so much, and she. Um, It's very uh, Farouza Balk at the end of Almost Famous where she's just like to love a piece of art so much. Can you
1: believe these new girls? None of them use birth control and they eat all the steak. I mean, they don't even know what it is to be a fan. You know, to truly love some silly little piece of music or some band so much that it hurts
0: and um she's just like you know she's a she's a groupie for for great italian artists and uh but like i loved the fact that it was judy dench playing the weirdo because we've seen her in so many other things playing you know stately or you know an authority figure or
1: well and it's also the year after her oscar win too which i suppose it this was probably filmed either during or before, but like you could just as easily see her play one of the other roles and it not be as interesting.
0: Well, and she also kind of plays, you've seen Chocolat more recently than I have. She also plays kind of a kooky uh, local lady in Chocolat, right? She plays more like Oscar the Grouch. Oh, okay. All right. Drinking hot chocolate. Let's see if Oscar the Grouch had hot chocolate to drink all day, then he wouldn't be quite so grouchy. Is my uh, is my hypothesis?
1: Famously French Oscar the Grouch. Um, <laughs> I also just like that it was Judy Dench that got to kind of be the one that's friends with Lily Tomlin.
0: Yeah, I mean they all are to a degree. Like they are, all, they're all you know friendly with her. Lily Tomlin and Cher are like the closest together, and there's this you know. Quasi intimation that like Lily Tomlin sort of holds uh, something of a torch for Cher when she gets like super jealous that Cher and this Italian lawyer are mm-hmm. like, getting together, but um, because Joan Plowright I think is also seems you know very like Joan Plowright's like the sad one among them. Well, right, her backstory is that her um, husband and father both died in World War One and she doesn't have any kids and that's part of the reason why she's sort of taken this motherly bond to Luca the way she does and she's definitely yeah the most sort of serious maggie smith is the mean one the snob the snobbiest of them and judy dench is you know the the art weirdo and we love her <laughs> for it it's i've i thought All it was somewhere so hiding funny her watching paintings Yes, yes, exactly. And she's the one who ultimately, at the end, makes the brave uh, move to sort of stand between the Italians looking to demolish the art museum, just as the the Allies are sort of rolling into town and the Scots come in. Yeah, and she's, saved the day. she saves that whole museum. So we love her for it. Um, I did think while watching this that it's so funny. I, I often think about this with like actors who are these like really great actors. It, you reminded me of it when you were watching Grumpy Old Men this week.
1: and I was watching both of the grumpy and grumpy air. The,
0: Old the grumpy cinematic universe. And I was texting you, or maybe tweeting with you and our friend Jesse, about how um, that was the first movie I'd ever seen Jack Lemon in. Uh, even though, weirdly enough, I had already seen uh I knew Walter Matho from Dennis the Menace and I knew uh Ann Margaret from um Newsies. <laughs> So like all of these sort of like odd little like first interactions with these people that grumpy old man might have been the first time I had ever seen Sophia Loren in a movie so maybe there was that but um watching this movie made me think about that too, where Joan Plowright, definitely the first thing I ever saw her in was Dennis the Menace, because she played Walter Matthau's wife in that movie. Weirdly, like Dennis the Menace was an early text for, uh, for a lot of things for me. Um, Maggie Smith, of course, the first movie I ever saw her in was Sister Act. Like I had no idea, 1000%. no idea watching Sister Act that this was like already a two time Academy award winner in this film, uh, opposite Whoopi Goldberg. Um, I mean Cher I knew from a billion things obviously mermaids and all this other sort of stuff
1: and like Cher you knew from her very existence
0: yeah and like Lily Tomlin is somebody I had seen in probably like a billion things uh, up to oh, nine to this. five ever since
1: I was a kid right but the thing about Lily Tomlin is for whatever reason my mind had blocked her from being in the poster but she's there and like her presence in this movie is so odd to me. She comes in at like kind of these unexpected parts. She's friends with all of these Brits, which I suppose like Cher is American too. But, yes. Like she's the she's the least essential to the plot. Right. Right. So it's like her place in this movie is very um unbalanced.
0: Yes. I think she's sort of the, I think she's the, you know how you put like salt in a sweet recipe to, to accentuate the sweetness? She is the American who, by her presence, all the British ladies seem like all the more British. Maybe? like There's also a character who's sort of the, uh, the, the newspaper reporter, and I can't, place the name of the actress now i'm going to try and find it in the cast list but i was sort of hoping that she would be a little bit more of a character there's one point where now i've got to bring up my notes cuz i wrote this down where she says uh she's accused of sleeping around with a lot of the italian locals and she just goes i experience life and i owe it to my talent as a writer and i was just like that is the best justification for hoeing out that i've ever seen in my life and
1: i love it so much (laughs) i'll use it as a justification for anything um uh dining right i owe it to my talent as a writer
0: like Mm -hmm. like get it
1: get all of it boozing
0: yeah i do sort of wish that lily tomlin had been More of a character with like more to do, but then also I did spend a lot of this movie being very, very worried that like she's she's a lesbian in this movie and she's pretty like out about it. And Mm -hmm. in all of these things that you see, like you
1: know, I've seen Cabaret too. It's always that fifth most essential character that dies, and it's and
0: like but and I've seen Cabaret. Like I know what happens to the decadence in Weimar Germany. Like I like you you're instinctively just incredibly concerned that like, they're going to make an example of her or something. And, uh, I'm very thankful that that did not happen. That's where I sort of came in. I don't know. I was just like, I'm thankful that this is Zeffirelli wanting to tell his sort of coming of age story in a way that was sweet. And mm-hmm. that made me sort of, uh, you know, thankful for that, even if the ultimately
1: thing that I kept thinking about through this whole movie, um, in terms of, like, the sweetness and what this setting is and, like, what was going on in the world at the time. Yeah. I kept thinking about, because I just recently watched Life is Beautiful, and I, I spent most of that movie being vaguely or outright offended by what right. uh, Roberto Panini was doing. Right. And I was worried once this movie started ramping up that we were going to get that, and it didn't. It never goes... That far into this kind of like rose tinted glasses yeah. look at World War Two in Italy, that it's like you know just like obfuscating right uh, what was happening wasn't it you know? is,
0: wasn't it actually very like uh, funny and silly in this time
1: yeah yeah isn't the triumph of the spirit <laughs> really what it's all about right um.
0: We should talk about Zeffirelli for a second, who is almost certainly best known for directing the 1968 Romeo and Juliet, which starred... um, Which he got a director nomination for best picture nominee best director nominee at the 1968 oscars of course we all know
1: most assuredly the romeo and juliet that our listeners have all had wheeled in on a tv to watch in uh like middle school or high school okay my literature classes
0: same but also my question to you is did they show you an edit that uh that skips past the nude scene the boots. Yes, Olivia Olivia Hussey's uh, uh,
1: bare breasts in that movie. Um, I would assume that most of our listeners have, but like that's definitely the version that people have seen. Ah, uh, we kind of had a cool teacher who oh. showed us William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. Perfect, but like. I was probably of the generation where that started to be a thing. William Shakespeare's you know, get away with it. Yeah,
0: William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet came out while I was in high school, so they were definitely not showing us that. They definitely showed us. They interestingly enough, uh, I watched the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet in uh, school, and I also watched the Zeffirelli Hamlet. In school, when they the were Mel when one. they were teaching oh, us boy. Hamlet, yes, the Mel Gibson Hamlet, because they did not have time to show us all eight billion hours of Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, which also came out while I was in high school. Um, but yes, so Romeo and Juliet is definitely like his most uh, known and probably widely acclaimed film, but like his his filmography. Is really kind of interesting. His first big movie was *The Taming of the Shrew*, which was right before *Romeo and Juliet*, mm-hmm. which starred Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Which makes me want to go and see that movie. Um, but he directed movies like *The Champ*, that one with uh, John Voight as the boxer, Champ, and, like a uh, little Ricky Schroeder. He directed. That's what he he yells while sobbing, right? The little yes. boy.
1: Champ, get
0: up! Yes, exactly. Yes um uh traumatized current uh m- uh maga scum uh Ricky schroeder yes uh and John Boy, yeah also scum <laughs> uh the he directed the notoriously uh sort of uh not well loved endless love which starred Brooke Shields and Tom Cruise was in it and truly the very sweaty yes the the most lasting impact of that film is of course the title song that was by uh, Diana Ross and Lionel Richie that was nominated for an Oscar because everything nominated for an Oscar in the 80s
1: was a hit um I also associate that song so much more with Happy Gilmore. <laughs> of course, absolutely, kind that's of me the, too. That's the whole story with his grandmother, and then the guy on the whatever you the call it, ice glazing. The Zamboni, machine, the ice glazing uh, machine is singing along.
0: Yeah, friend, yeah, friends, listen to "Endless Love in the Dark" was a thing that I said a lot when I was a, uh, a smart alecky teen. The 1990 Hamlet is interesting. Um, this cast in this is amazing that's the other thing is like as zeffirelli's career went on he just attracted the most star-studded international casts to his movies uh mm-hmm. his hamlet mel gibson plays hamlet which yikes glenn close is queen gertrude which what's the age separation there like it can't be much mel gibson's born in 1956 glenn close is born in 1947, so that's a nine-year age difference for mother and son in that film. Ellen um, Bates is in the movie. Paul Schofield, Ian Holm. Helena Bonham Carter is the Ophelia in this one, which I always think is funny, that she's the Ophelia in this and not in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. The Branagh one. Uh, and that's Kate Winslet, who is was uh, Ophelia in that one. Stephen Delane is in the Zeffirelli Hamlet. Pete Uh It's a very, very well-cast movie um probably did have Oscar buzz we probably could get away with uh,
1: it's uh we can't do a, oh, it was nominated? Uh, an episode on it. it it is nominated for two awards oh oh art
0: direction and costume design that does not surprise me that does not surprise me not surprised okay um he's directs a uh, jane Eyre in 1996 with william hurt and charlotte gainsborg that just sounds traumatizing <laughs> i feel like that would be like emotionally <laughs> intense in a way that would be uh
1: it would be uh, Jane Eyre via Antichrist because Charlotte <laughs> Gainsbourg is there. I guess
0: it's it's probably not fair of me to only uh, vibe with Charlotte Gainsbourg along the lines of the uh, the Lars von Trier movies that she's made, but like they're all so traumatizing. Um, Joan Plowright <laughs> is also in that uh, Jane Eyre, as is Fiona Shaw, as is Geraldine Chaplin. Again, just like attracts these really uh, star-studded casts. He did a. I believe it was a television movie or miniseries in the 70s called Jesus of Nazareth that would always get replayed around Easter time
1: and... On, like, Hallmark Channel before they were making their own things. I talk
0: a lot about uh, how my dad and I and, and my siblings would all watch the Ten Commandments every Easter, but, like, also, with my dad, I would, my dad, I, it sounds like my dad is this like giant religious person and he's really not. He just like, but like, Jesus of Nazareth and the greatest story ever told, which I think is the one that stars Max von Sydow as Jesus. Um, Sounds right. Uh, we would watch both of those things all the time. like my dad was very much into like the biblical epics on television, and so we would watch all of those things. But like now, I'm looking at the cast of Jesus of Nazareth, and it's genuinely insane. Where it's like, isn't
1: it Anne Bancroft in that or something? Anne Bancroft is Mary Magdalene.
0: Olivia husey yes. from uh Juliet from Romeo and Juliet is Mary, the mother of Jesus, which is the only one of these big cast members that I remember from the movie. But like. Ernest Borgnine is in this movie. Valentina Corteza, James Earl Jones, Stacey Keach, James Mason as Joseph of Arimathea, Ian McShane well before anybody who knew what he who he was uh is Judas Iscariot. Laurence Olivier is in this. Donald Pleasence, Christopher Plummer, Anthony Quinn, Rod Steiger, Peter Ustinov, Michael York, Ian Holm uh like it genuinely Boggles my mind how many like big stars I've major visited. television like, events. Yeah, like genuinely, this had to have been a BBC thing or something. Um, But anyway, like that's sort of the Zeffirelli vibe. And then Tea with Mussolini is the second last feature film he ever made. Uh, released in nineteen ninety nine, he made something called Callous Forever in two thousand two, which was about yeah, Maria that's Callus. the Maria
1: Callus biopic. Yes.
0: Um, Plowright is also in that. Jeremy Irons is in that. Um, so yeah, it's his, um, it's funny for a long time before I really knew, like, what was going on, I would get Zeffirelli and Bertolucci sort of confused a lot, which is <laughs> these sort of just, like...
1: They definitely have different, like, vibes. Definitely different
0: vibes. Zeffirelli is definitely sort of the the sort of more soft peddly, like, like Bertolucci is... Sexuality. Yeah. um, Although Zeffirelli had some real unsavory things uh, thrown his way, sort of, as uh, later in life uh, Jonathan Sheck accused him of Uh, sexual assaults during the filming of a movie called sparrow in 1993
1: and oh wow yeah
0: um and also the guy who played benvolio in romeo and juliet says that uh, there were unwanted sexual advances uh by zeffirelli this according to wikipedia which again grain of salt grain of salt but um yeah so uh hollywood full full of people whose lives do not pass the scrutiny of were they sexual creeps so he also like came out as gay but then also like affirmed the catholic church's positions on homosexuality and abortion he was a very very like staunch uh roman catholic uh in his life and uh sort of said something semi-anti-Semitic uh, about The Last Temptation of Christ and um, uh, Jewish Hollywood, which, like, just a lot of, like, not great stuff in the later years for uh, for Zeffirelli. But here we stand. Oh, boy. Yes,
1: exactly. A lot. That's a lot. I mean, it's not like... This is a movie that you're going to praise for its direction or anything. No. so
0: And again, I mean, we, you know, separate the art and the artist. Yada, yada, yada. But
1: yeah. um, Much,
0: much happier to talk about Cher and Judy Dench, of course, uh, in this film.
1: Um, Cher is great in this movie.
0: She's great in this movie. This is the thing.
1: Like, this movie doesn't need Cher to be great. This movie needs Cher to show right. up. And Cher is... I mean, she's not really in that much of it. But, like... You mentioned her doing Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which is just like, God, kill me, throw me into the sea, yep. what can get better than and this? And it's like
0: 15 seconds worth of it, but it's so... Right, it's not even the full song. Wonderful, probably 30 seconds. I'm 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 undervaluing it,
1: but like, movies with smoke gets in your eyes, the cinematic universe that I am most interested
0: in. Yeah, so what it's this, it's 45 years. It's uh It's uh The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Nice. Nice. This is your film festival that you were going to program when yeah. <laughs> I, when I win the lottery and I, do, I I uh although somebody won that goddamn billion dollar powerball last night and it wasn't me and I'm really mad.
1: Um You will buy me a revival theater, and I will only program movies. That's what I'm. If if I ever
0: win the lottery, that is what I will do. Is I will open a uh, a revival movie house. Yes. Um, What was I going to say though? Share. Okay, so (laughs) she sort of
1: also the first time that she had sang on film before. Yes, which I was
0: very surprised by. this movie also knows that it has share because it like it really mm-hmm. paves an entrance for her. She sort of like rolls into town in this like convertible black and white like Rolls-Royce looking uh town car and she like her outfit like matches the car and she's just like really super fabulous. There is one point just before actually she sings Smoke It's in Your Eyes, she says, Where's my goddamn Picasso? And honestly, like that could have been the movie right there. Is Cher saying, Where's my goddamn Picasso? That's all I want out of this. Um yeah, she's wonderful. She's very warm towards Luca. Like, this is the other thing. Like, people always sort of talk about Cher as if she's this because um, she's so powerful. She has such, like, you know, great power. And she's been famously uh sort of has said all these things about just like she doesn't need a husband she's gonna you know do what she wants and yada yada. people sort of uh, gloss onto her this uh almost like a like a dragon lady persona that she's sort of like fearful like she plays warmth so well like she plays other things so well too she's you know uh in in mermaids and in moonstruck she's very sort of tough and whatnot but um she plays warmth so well towards Luca in this movie and also towards like Joan Plowright and Lily Tomlin. Like Mm -hmm. she seems like a really great friend in this movie. She seems like a, like, but also she's like, as all of these women are, at least most of them are like pretty naive towards what's happening around them and her wealth, much like Maggie Smith's sort of has cocooned her in this world that she's able to sort of like operate in, in a way that like, most women at that time wouldn't be able to. Like, she's independently wealthy because she's married these, like, older rich men who have then died. And so she has the money to spend on Picassos and to travel to Florence and to do all this and to
1: be independent. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah, exactly. How do we do this?
0: And as would be probably anybody in that position at the time. Like, she has some self-awareness for sure, but she still ultimately is like she doesn't see it coming when this Italian skeezer sort of you know tries to steal her money and sell her into the the to sell her to the nazis and um so it's there's pathos there right there's you know you feel for her
1: and as deeply as this movie kind of wants you to you know it's not this isn't uh, this movie doesn't want uh huge levels of pathos no, but yes, I see. I I agree with. But it's what not all just like she's not all brassy. She's not all just like you know, um, yeah. I mean, really, it only kind of gives her space to do that at the beginning of the movie, and then it just yeah. lets her be this character. I do, you know, you she blazes into the movie, and you half expect her to become like auntie mame or something, <laughs> right? Really, right she's really not that character
0: i probably could have gone with a script that allowed her and maggie smith to sort of throw some barbs at each other a little bit more maggie has a couple of these sort of like from afar kind of things about how she you know uh she you know can't wait to be rid of Cher's character and she you know she resents her and all this sort of stuff and i would have liked maybe a little bit of uh opportunities for those two to kind of snipe at each other a little bit more
1: you know they're called especially because like the emotional climax of the movie is like their reconciliation yes. where maggie smith is like you've just been screwed over by this man and that's how i relate to you and shares like oh when did that happen to you and maggie smith's like Musollini. mussolini right yes you you and this man who's it trying is to kill the you the most and... reach of a monologue um yes But yes, this is why she decides to help her connect with her because of this arbitrary, very screenwriting class monologue. Yes.
0: And I think if there were more between the two of them early on where they were really, you know, at each other's throats a little bit more in a very sort of, you know, genteel, rich lady way, of course. um, Like, clearly, you know that Maggie Smith's character can't stand her. And... The implication is that, like, Elsa knows it and, like, doesn't really care for her either. But it's less of a a real rivalry that it maybe should be if that's your big emotional uh, yeah.
1: climax. Definitely. And it could have allowed for a lot more fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, do you think this movie does enough at the beginning to sell this sort of Florentine lifestyle in a way that, like, you
1: would want... These British lady ladies who just live their lives in Italy. Yeah, that, they, that um, they won't
0: leave it. You know what I mean? I think maybe my thinking was that, like, I maybe would have wanted a, just a little bit more at the beginning to just be like, why won't they just go to England and be fancy ladies in England? Like, this is... Well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, because they can fetishize the art, and I they,
0: think that's. Um, I think that's a big part of it. And I think that's why it the dench character really. Support.
1: That feels like this is what my, back to my thing of like this movie isn't particularly well directed is like that feels like a very specific thing or a very specific type yeah. of these elder British women. Who decide to live in Italy for reasons X, Y, and Z, and this is the context in which they did it. Like that it feels incredibly specific and the movie is just kind of flat in that way, and that like Yeah. That is a really interesting sounding character type that they just kind of gloss over. Yes. Yeah and just let them be in this surround all
0: of the characters feel specific in their own ways where it's like you get why these would all be people or at least like character types that come from zeffirelli's memory right where Mm -hmm. and that tracks that like that there's somebody who's so sort of like uh, ensconced in her own privilege that she believes that she can you know get these assurances from mussolini and then sort of look the other way and all these things and you believe that somebody <laughs> believe cuz it's share uh, that somebody like yeah. like the share character would have existed and yet the movie ultimately is so content at being you know the luca story that it doesn't feel as you know experiential on the on the behalf of the women Mhm. So, I don't know. This movie definitely it's interesting that it had 66% on Rotten Tomatoes because it definitely didn't feel like it at the time. It definitely felt like the reviews were worse than that.
1: Really. Okay, see I guess I was surprised that it was as good of reviews as it was I mean like it's kind of the type of middling thing that like critics are never going to be the audience for this movie but I remember like this being the type of movie that knew exactly what its audience was so it was just in theaters all summer but I never saw it yeah but like it was perfectly counterprogrammed to like you usually do see in early summer a movie meant for an older audience right like against all of these like action movies and whatnot, but like it makes absolute sense that this movie opened the week before Phantom Menace did.
0: Yes. Although Phantom Menace that summer was so I feel like concentrated. The the attention that summer was so concentrated on Phantom Menace. And the only thing that even like got a smidge of other attention was uh Austin Powers, The Spy Shag Me. And yeah. <laughs> um that, like, it really was tough for anything else to get oxygen, even counter programming. It did manage to get $14 million at the box office, which is actually really good for a movie like this. Absolutely. Even though I can't imagine it was all that cheap to make, considering, you know, you had share, you were filming in Italy, yada, yada, yada. Uh, IMDb says the budget was $12 million, so it seems to have made a uh, tidy profit global wise, although, Lord knows, the economics of these things are. Uh, are wild as hell and full of uh, lies <laughs> and fairy tales and fallacies, as uh, Monique Hart would say. Um, so yeah, so good for this movie. I'm now looking at the poster, one of the posters. There's a few posters. But the one that I like it the It literally is...
1: looks like a postage stamp.
0: It does, but it also looks like Cher is in heaven uh, staring down... Uh, beatifically at uh, the other women and it's also
1: like it's Tomlin yeah she's not at the tea table with them so it makes you again back to the confusion of what the fuck is this title it's like wait a minute is Cher Mussolini
0: (laughs) right she's the ghost of Mussolini and reincarnated as Cher but it's like it's Tomlin and Dench and Smith and Plow right at the table and then it's both of the actors who played Luca which I think is very funny as a concept again confusing uh okay like cool but also weird and strange so there's that um this movie did not ultimately make a dent in the 1999 oscar race but we should talk about the 1999 oscars because they are a real fascinating sort of uh uh topic and
1: I mean, it, it does, it makes complete sense that this movie wouldn't, A, being a summer movie, like be able to leg it out throughout the season, even though it made money and it could have been like a Globes comedy thing. Because like 1999 is so fucking macho. Yes. Where it's like the sensitive movie is Cider House rules. <laughs> it's true. And like the Green Mile. Yeah. Yeah, the Green Mile being like,
0: comparatively uh, I guess there are the fact that The Sixth Sense is about a little boy is also sort of like a little sensitive but yeah you're right like this is definitely the obviously the thing about 1999 is that this just like legendarily amazing year for movies and then the best picture lineup ends up being terrible Oscar year really uh, underwhelming but you make a good point about the Golden Globe comedy that like actress in a comedy could have made some room for this but it didn't one of the reasons why i think is there was a more uh or at least like a better received released later in the year costume comedy uh, released that year which was an ideal husband that julianne moore gets a mm-hmm. nomination for at the globes that year Janet McTeer won the actress in a comedy Golden Globe that year for *Tumbleweeds*, on her way to mm-hmm. her first of two uh, Oscar nominations in her
1: career. And have you seen *Tumbleweeds*? I still I haven't caught up to. I still that haven't. Recently. I know after
0: we did our *Anywhere But Here* episode, I said that I would, and I still have not seen *Tumbleweeds*. Very
1: similar movies. I vastly prefer *Anywhere But Here*. Yeah. Um, it's just, like, even for some me, someone who, like, I want to watch nothing but those movies about this of a mother and daughter, like, going across the country, et cetera, yeah. Um it didn't land with me. I don't even, I mean, like, uh, uh, Janet McTeer is really charming, but, like, I wasn't laughing. <laughs> right. For it to win it's a comedy. It's, like, one comedy. of those things that yeah. it was put in comedy because it's lighthearted.
0: Yeah. Uh, Julia Roberts was also nominated that year for Notting Hill. This was the big, one of the big sort of like Julia Roberts is back baby kind of a thing, even though My Best Friend's Mm -hmm. Wedding was only two years earlier than that. But this was the year where it's like she's back and the box office is sort of hers. It was this and Runaway Bride, like back to back, and everybody was celebrating Julia. And then, of course, that would lead into the next year when she's in Erin Brockovich and she wins the Oscar. Um... Classic Golden Globe nominee there, right? Hit movie, big movie star, very likable. Of course, they're going to nominate Julia Roberts in Notting Hill. Uh, Reese Witherspoon in Election is definitely the cool nominee that year. That's the Emma Stone and mm-hmm. Easy A nomination, I feel like, of that year.
1: and Because Election wasn't ever really... I mean, it, it was an Oscar nominee, but Election... Feels like it would get more respect now, but like at the time, it was the nasty, mean-spirited movie. It was an MTV movie. Reese Witherspoon movie. had like category confusion, which is weird and strange, and like,
0: yeah, um, would only happen to a younger actress uh, in that role.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, it was. It was produced by MTV Films, and it was marketed towards young people initially, and ultimately, I think. Probably, I would say the critics were the ones to just be like, no, this is a really good movie and you need to pay attention to this. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, it did get that uh, screenplay nomination because it was highly deserved. Uh, And that is a movie that has steadily gotten more and more respect as the years have gone on mm-hmm.
1: it's in the criterion collection and rightly so
0: and then the fifth nominee at the globes for best comedy actress that year is the one that tickles me the most and that is sharon stone for the muse the albert brooks movie the muse which <laughs> is a funny movie i've never i've nominee. never seen it and i want to i just love that sharon stone was pulling down uh nominations like that from the globes on the regular kind of cuz she also got nominated for the mighty I want to say
1: I would love to do an episode on The Mighty.
0: We should do we should do an episode on The Mighty. I would love to just do like a deep dive into Sharon Stone in general. She's had four Golden Globe nominations throughout her career and she obviously won for Casino, en route to her only Oscar nomination. But she was nominated for Basic Instinct 92, Casino 95 which she won, The Mighty 1998 supporting actress, and then The Muse in 1999. Like that's that is a that is one of those occasions where the golden globes feel far more representative of an actor's career than their oscar fortunes right like sharon stone was mm-hmm. that much of a thing in the 90s that she would have gotten four golden globe nominations that seems correct
1: we haven't done right by sharon stone i
0: mean that's that's i say it all the time and it's true uh
1: People have asked us before on mailbag episodes who is a great kooky actress to follow on Instagram. Sharon Stone is high <laughs> on that list, <laughs> I believe it. She might be high on something. Else. Yes,
0: um, but yeah. So yeah, ninety nine. Um, not almost none of those uh, women in the Golden Globe comedy actress category made it to the Oscars. Only Janet McTeer did.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Which feels like a jockeying thing, like the of like saying no, this is a comedy for something that isn't, and it obviously paid off. Yeah, she was probably firmly third place for the Oscar. Oh, who do
0: you think was second? Oh, oh no, wait, no. Benning
1: and Swig. I. It's so
0: funny that I think of those two almost as like tied for first. That I'm just like, well, of course it was McTier. Left. <laughs> but yeah, it was the two of them, and then McTier. Yes, I think she was solidly third. Probably Julianne Moore uh fourth and then Merrill for music of the heart fifth yeah that seems about right mm-hmm. yeah uh release the vote totals that is all we want i brought up my own personal 1999 uh actress and supporting actress lists
1: because i wanted to oh fun um i wasn't prepared with those so uh on. all
0: right so my supporting actress that year which like one of the great even like the oscars got that one really well for as much as we sort of rag on best picture that year the oscar nominees were angelina jolie and in girl interrupted who is great uh Catherine keener being john malkovich great chloe sevigny boys don't cry great Cal- tony collette in the sixth sense great and then samantha morton in sweet and lowdown who was good so solid to very solid set of nominees there um on my own list i have keener sevigny and, sorry, I'm looking at this thing. Keener, Sevigny, and Colette, for sure, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Cameron Diaz for being John Malkovich, who was a Globe nominee, but not an Oscar nominee. I think she's really great in that. And then my winner that year, who never got Oscar or awards attention, which is really too bad, is Helena Bonham Carter in Fight Club, who I think is... Astoundingly fantastic, astoundingly good, astoundingly good. But that was also the year that like Julianne Moore was in a bunch of things as a supporting actress that could mm-hmm. have got. She was Cookie's Fortune, Cookie's Fortune, Magnolia, A Map of the World. Like she's fantastic, and all the. I know that like her Magnolia performance is a little bit divisive. Some people think it's too big to be good, but I think that movie accommodates big. That's, that's the movie. Like, that's the thing. <laughs> And I I do love her uh, her big sort of freakouts in that movie. Uh, best actress I have Swank and Benning of course Reese Witherspoon in Election of course I have Kate Winslet in Holy Smoke the Jane Campion movie Holy Smoke. Ooh I need to catch up to that. It's weird. It's super weird. She plays a. Is that the movie where she pees? Yeah, I'm pretty sure.
1: Okay. Um,
0: She plays a young woman who has sort of fallen under the influence of a cult in Australia or maybe New Zealand, knowing Jane Campion. And Harvey Keitel is tasked with sort of going to find her and deprogram her. And it's a very sort of like contentious slash, uh, I'm pretty sure, sexual sort of uh, thing, encounter between the two of them it's been a while since i've seen it i should probably watch it again um and then my fifth nominee that year is sigourney weaver in a map of the world who did get a golden globe nomination and that is a bummer of a movie. very good in that, that movie. is like a bummer of a movie because it's about a kid who dies but like she is she and julianne moore actually like together are like really really great uh mm-hmm. in that one but yeah i think that's a really good year for actress performances
1: two names that i would throw in there that haven't been mentioned because i don't have i, I didn't prepare uh, my ballot for it but uh two names that because mine would probably be amalgam of names that we've mentioned but two that we haven't mentioned in supporting actress i would say Kate blanchett for the talented mr ripley yes. it's a very good pick um and lead actress, I would say, Cecilia Roth for All About My Mother. Also a very good pick.
0: Yeah. It was a really great year. There were some really, really uh, worthy, worthy actress nominations of that year. What else do we want to talk about for Mussolini, though?
1: Well, I mean, we could mention, even though she got bad reviews, Maggie Smith won BAFTA for this movie in Supporting Actress. God bless her.
0: I don't think she's bad in God this bless. movie.
1: So, like, she's, is she... Uh I think those reviews are just being mean and it's critics who naturally are not going to like the I mean, like, it's not like I'm not one of those people that's like, of course critics didn't like this movie, but right. like I think at the time, like there was especially hostility towards this type of movie that they just want to roll their eyes at. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's probably part of it. And again it. But yeah, Maggie Smith won against no Oscar nominees. Who? BAFTA also nominated Cameron Diaz for Being John Malkovich, Kate Blanchett for Talented Mr. Ripley, and both from American Beauty, Mina Suvari and Thora wow. Birch.
0: Wow. It was interesting. The American Beauty Oscar sort of journey is really interesting in and of itself. But like the fact that Spacey and Benning were such strong acting contenders in the lead races, that that movie wasn't able to harness supporting... Uh, nominations for either Mina Suvari, Thora Birch, Chris Cooper, or Wes Bentley when I think like all of them had showy enough sort of mm-hmm. stuff.
1: Um, Chris Cooper, especially. Chris Cooper, kind of especially, right? Like he was. That's absolutely like the type of performance that gets like that just sails to a nomination. If he
0: had already been an Oscar winner by that point, like if American Beauty had come after adaptation,
1: uh, because what was the biggest thing he had really done before Lone Star, kind of, right? Uh, yeah, I was gonna say the John Sayles movie. Yeah. Right?
0: But he was like a very, very like character actor's character actor. Like you didn't really know who he was. Um and also Allison Janney, too, like that was right after the West Wing happened. So um Alison Janney was still kind of uh in character actress mode for that as well. And that's another one where you could see it happening later where like it's a really small role, but it's also uh the sort of shell-shockedness of her feels like it would be could be hooky for something like that uh if she was already sort of a big name after the fact. Mm-hmm. That is a movie I am petrified to revisit because I really at the time kind of flipped for it i was uh, 19 years old i mean a lot of
1: people did i i feel like well and we also kind of responded to the aesthetics of it right because it's an incredibly well-made movie and like in ways that we those type we've talked about this before where like the 90s were just this build-up of these like Left of center, um, right chastisements of like suburban life, right, and I think it had a very different visual appeal that you know yes. kind of transcended a lot of those other movies too. So it kind of gave it this air of being something a little bit more special and. Yeah really just didn't interrogate that screenplay and if it was it was just that people thought the premise of this man wanting to sleep with a teenager was icky and they didn't want to approach it whereas like that's still a problem but it has a whole like bunch of other problems, yeah. too. Yes. Where it's like, that is a problem that the movie actually addresses yes. and deals with in its climax. But it's like, there's a whole lot else going on. Yeah.
0: I think you're right, though. I, I think if you look back to the 80s and, like, ordinary people really set a template for the kind of family domestic drama. Serious domestic drama. And that's sort of how those movies were made for a long while. And then you're absolutely right about the 90s indie sort of revolution, kind of opening the doors for different types of stories, but those were all still very sort of low-budget indies that weren't interested in the kind of visual dazzle that American Beauty does, and also the performance dazzle. Or there's like... Because, like, Benning and Spacey are, like, like, doing big stuff in that. And I remember really responding to that when I was, you know, a teenager watching that movie because it was the kind of stuff that you didn't see in that
1: kind of movie. I mean, the movie's essentially a comedy that got treated like it was a drama. And I think the fact that it was it it actually is a comedy is the thing that kind of latched people onto it. But, like, those type of movies, it's also that... You know, there was always something that was keeping it on the outside of wider acclaim. You think of uh, something like the Ice Storm, which is, uh, per our episode, where I think we danced around calling the movie "Chilly," right, right, <laughs> or "Chilly" for a wider audience, yeah. or like something like Happiness, which is yes. like way too far for most. People. It's almost
0: like the Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? Where it's just like the Ice Storm mm-hmm. is. Uh, a little reserved and then happiness is way too grotesque and American Beauty was the bowl of porridge that was just right for uh, awards voters at least and and the public too like it was a really kind of popular movie with people who who saw it at the time. Yeah, that's
1: like $150 million. I should revisit it. I bet
0: you I don't end up hating it as much as I worry that I'm going to end up hating it. I don't think I'll like it as much as I liked it back then, but I'm interested to see what I still think of it. I'm sure there are... How much you cringe. Yeah, yeah. And what and what I cringe at. Because you're right, it's not just the spacey stuff. Like, it's the way... I'll be interested to see how I respond to like the way the daughter is written, the way the Wes Bentley character is written, the way that the movie sort of builds up to this horrified justification that Chris Cooper is going to commit a murder because he's worried that his son is gay. Like, that kind of a thing and but he's also right. like and it's the he's it's a very mike pence kind of like uh he's he's hateful because he's gay like he's, he he mm. can't admit it that kind of a thing which
1: is really cringy now um also just the hacky like he learns to appreciate life for once by looking at a photo uh-huh. and then he dies yeah yeah like, also the okay. whole conceit
0: about him sort of like Flying and floating above uh, this world that he's exiting as he's dying is some um, last scene of far and away nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but like even more sort of cringy. What what I would
1: also the final button of the movie is him saying, "If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry." Cut to black. You uh. will. And then a cover of The Beatles because chimes in. It's just yeah. very um of a time. I'm less
0: trepidatious about going back and revisiting Six Feet Under, which at least at the time sort of knew it was trucking in a lot of unpleasantness and there was like a lot of six feet under i i sort of forget about it because the finale is so wonderful and perfect and emotional that like i have such fondness but like a lot of six feet under became really unpleasant because all like it kept sort of pushing its characters through the emotional muck so often That Mm -hmm. to the point where like I remember I would go into a six feet under season and I'm just like well last season we sort of broke David down now who's gonna get broken down this season but it had these really strong characters that I felt really uh, like a real affinity for like Claire and and uh, Ruth and and even David who like drove me crazy (laughs) I did I ever tell you the story about how like six feet under is how I ended up coming out for the first time oh no. Uh, In a really weird way, where I was watching an episode of Six Feet Under, and I can't remember the specifics of the episode, but it was one of the many episodes where David makes a self-destructive choice, like, decides to either, like, cheat on Keith or, like, reject, you know, something, you know, this, like, proposal of Keith's or something like that. Something where he chose isolation and uh, aggravation over his own happiness. Mm -hmm. And I remember, for whatever reason... You know, going through it internally as I was being like really upset about it, and I was a AOL instant messaging with a friend of mine who also watched Six Feet Under, and I was just trying to explain why I was so frustrated by this. And I was just like, "Oh my god, I'm so frustrated," and she's just like, "Why are you reacting this way?" <laughs> and I, that's when I was just like, "Because, like, I, like," and then I like said, you know, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm gay," and I you know it's bugging me because you know whatever whatever because it's Mm -hmm. david and david's gay um and that was the first time i had ever told anybody (laughs) that i was gay because fucking david on six feet under drove me so fucking crazy like that was uh that was the first little moment yeah yeah
1: that's So. so lovely you actually kind have of. a nice um, AOL Instant Messenger story. <laughs> the one I, I feel the like one everyone else nice. is or traumatic, or um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was traumatic for you. I'm, yeah. I'm projecting.
0: It wasn't particularly traumatic. My friend who I told was like really, you know, kind about it and
1: whatnot. And uh, yeah, and then I, whatever. Well, I, I do have very um, specific. Um, contextual questions about this that I need, just so you can paint the whole picture for me. Yes. What was your font? What was your font color? And what was your (laughs) font background color? I never on AOL Instant Messenger.
0: I never got super into uh, tricking out my aim.
1: Like Ah, I know this was a Times New Roman situation. I
0: think yes, probably so, because I think that was a thing that people that people younger than me did. Where I think if you got into AIM as a high schooler, you got real extra with how you were going to trick out your fonts and your backgrounds and whatever. Your and way I think,
1: message, the whole negotiation Right. that.
0: I think people like me who got into AIM as a college student, there was less of that, I think. Anecdotally is what I will say. Maybe I'm just a deeply boring person who just like <laughs> did I definitely had a like a signature though, or like a you know how you had your away message, right? Away message was a was a quote. And I definitely cycled through a lot of yours
1: were definitely Tori Amo's lyrics. You don't have to tell me.
0: A lot of them were absolutely although Less so before I came out because I didn't want to like tip my hand too much. Um, But yeah, there were definitely a lot of Tory lyrics and a lot of. I was way
1: sadder on AIM. First of all, my away (laughs) messages were usually Fiona Apple lyrics, which didn't matter because no one would talk to me. (laughs) Oh, was it like.
0: I don't know what to believe in. You don't know who I am from. Uh, from "Never Is a Promise," one of my favorite Fiona
1: Apples. I forever. probably was really bad at it. It was probably lyrics that I just really liked, and because I liked them, I thought they were representative of me. And I wasn't being like smart or witty. It was just something that I liked, and you know, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't a method of communication I was good at. Listen,
0: Fiona's here for all. So she's there to help you communicate. Yeah. Amazon- truly,
1: what my uh, away message should have been would have been like deep disco blue background, stars in yellow, and Ooh, boy. in alternating all caps and lowercase, I can feel something inside me say, I really don't think I'm strong enough now. <laughs> perfect. Absolutely perfect.
0: Uh, I just, there are so few share movies that we really do have to cherish all we of do. them.
1: And I think that's the lesson of Tea with Mussolini. It's just like. The bridge between Tea with Mussolini and Mermaids is a Paul Mazursky movie, and I've been getting really into Paul Mazursky movies, so I'm going to try to seek that out.
0: It yes. feels
1: like it's not available.
0: Probably not. All share movies should be. This is the Criterion Collection's next challenge. Make. All like just as you did with Streisand this year, like all share movies should be available and together. This is I I need come back to the five and five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean to be available. Obviously, Silkwood and Moonstruck. Uh, obviously, yeah. Why yeah. isn't Silkwood in Criterion? That would make total sense. It would make total sense. It's share. It's Meryl. It's Mike Nichols. It's uh, uh Nora Ephron. It's yeah. all of it. All of it together. Yes all right do we have any closing thoughts i'm going to delve into i talked about smoke gets in your eyes i talked about where's my goddamn picasso um one love thing a movie I that speaks of. its title out loud when when maggie smith says i'm going to have tea with mussolini no wait she doesn't say it it's after she gets photographed and it's the ladies themselves and i think it's judy dench says she had tea with mussolini and i was like yes uh, this Jonathan Groff-ass looking boy. <laughs> uh, the quote from The Reporter, which I really liked. Yeah, Angela Lansbury and Vanessa Redgrave in this movie would have been an interesting uh, They would have been the Plowright and the Smith. Vanessa Redgrave definitely would have been the Smith. I've seen conflicting things. One of them said that Angela Lansbury was supposed to play Mary, but then it also said that Angela Lansbury was replaced by Judi Dench, so I'm not quite sure Mary was the Joan Plow. Maybe Judi so Dench
1: took the smaller role after that? Something? It's possible. That's definitely yeah.
0: possible. But Redgrave was definitely supposed to be the Maggie Smith, which definitely fits. If only because she would have referred to Cher's character as a Zionist hoodlum and, uh... <laughs> Uh, yes. So, there's that.
1: Small bunch. One thing I took note of awards wise in terms of share in this moment, I want to... I feel like I maybe should have brought this up earlier, but, like, Never too you know, late. tenet this episode, listeners, you just, like, go back in time after I've done... Whatever. Go
0: back. Tem- temporal pincer uh, uh, operation for
1: the beginning of this episode. Yes. If I can very viscerally, because when I saw this list... I was immediately teleported back in time. Somehow I found a way back to 2021. Share in the Believe Tea with Mussolini era, obviously she won like the Dance Grammy or whatever. Yes, She was nominated for Record of the Year. If I can place you in time by her fellow Record of the Year nominees. This is at the 98 or the 99 Grammys? 98. 98. Is, well, I guess it would have been 99, but for the year of 98. Right. Grammys are all
0: weird in terms of their uh,
1: time frames anyway, but yes. yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Uh, The winner is Rob Thomas and Santana for Smooth. (laughs) It is a hot one. Man, it is a hot one. Uh, That is a moment in time. Smooth. Your other nominees. I Want It That Way. Sure. Live in La Vida Loca. Yep. And No Scrubs. Wow.
0: This is very much um, my first year that I downloaded uh, songs from the internet. I
1: know. That is like, that record of the year lineup is like Napster, the playlist.
0: Yes. Very early Napster. Definitely very early college. Uh, live in La Vida Loca. I want it that way. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. That, er- <laughs> it really was the year where they were just like, we have put away uh, guitars for a while like i know like even though smooth is like very like santana is like the guitar god or whatever but like it was just like we are now a pop music nation and we need everybody to sort of recognize that and like the spice girls had already sort of you know paved a lot of that road and uh i guess who were the like? Who were the like nineteen ninety seven pop sort of ambassadors? It was the Spice Girls mostly, I guess. Hanson a little bit, but like mm-hmm. it was mostly the Spice when Girls. When did Britney we, we break out? Would oh, that so have been ninety eight? Ninety eight. I was a freshman in in college in the fall of ninety eight, and I remember that was like Britney broke out. Backstreet Boys had already had. Okay, this is so bizarre, and like. Nobody else is going to get this, but whatever. But, like, I really differentiate the eras, the micro eras between, like, uh, when the pop thing exploded was end of high school, I would see all of these things on the box because i remember watching like um Not the box i think it was like quit playing games with my heart was the earlier backstreet uh-huh. boys song and that was on the box all the time all the spice girls stuff was on the box and that's what i watched when i was in high school because Tearing up, up until heart. up until the very end of high school my mom had banned mtv from our house like got it taken off our channel lineup <gasps> um I know. I missed an entire real world season and the entire year that Jamiroquai became a thing on MTV. It was like a whole thing. So then I go to college and I get MTV back. So uh, I hop right back into the real world. And also uh, then it's Britney and NSYNC and Ricky Martin and all this. And that is the fall of 1998.
1: And, like, Marilyn Manson, right?
0: Well, also that Marilyn Manson, corn, which gave way to Limp Biscuit. Like, yes, there was... Yeah, I say we put away guitars, and what I mean is we just gave the angriest boys possible guitars. <laughs> and we let them do what they wanted to do with it. And then we allowed Eminem to, like, whatever, Ugh. like, drag women by their scalps and whatnot across the floor and found it funny, apparently. Um... What a time to be alive. I know everybody fetishizes the music of their, like, late high school into college years. But, like, truly what a time for me to be, like, a freshman in college when, like, all of that shit was going on. It's insane. But this is also why I will never get Britney the way that people who were 10 when Britney became a thing, like, it's a whole different animal. Like, I at least had, like, a little perspective and a little detachment. And I was already... 18-year-old college freshman, so I already fancied myself as a bit of a, you know, smarty pants or whatever. So, like, I never, like, I I don't fully get People's Britney thing. I still don't fully get it, but I get it more when I realize that like these kids were ten. These were little gay boys who were ten years old who like imprinted like fucking that last Twilight movie where the little baby imprints on uh, Taylor Lautner. That's what little gay boys did to Britney Spears. It's genuinely the
1: opening old. chime of Baby One More Time. I think it like locked the next like decade for people that's how like powerful that opening chime is that I think they had some type of uh, scientist involved that's like what can we do to alter brain frequencies musically right
0: and it was people it was like before they were like had gone through puberty so they didn't really have any like competing impulses in terms of just like they didn't know what their you know sexual deal was back then so it was just sort of like that i'm imprinting on this girl who's doing like awesome cool girl things and meanwhile i'm like 18 and staring at justin timberlake who's wearing a tank top in uh, the one video and i'm just like oh, okay well like this is what's happening right now okay like i had a whole different uh <laughs> battlefield in front of me
1: so you mean Britney Spears is like cousin or whatever from the baby one more time video who's <laughs> supposed to be her love interest and do it for you. See, I fully don't even
0: remember that. That's the thing. Yeah, it's just like, I
1: remember that making the video. Her love interest is like her cousin.
0: Amazing. God, what a weird, weird career she's had. Anyway. I love that the Tea with Mussolini episode is the one that we really, like, went in hard on Britney and and Justin Timberlake and Pop of the late 90s. We should do this
1: more. Listen, often. in the name of the Grammys uh, major winner that year, uh, man, it's a hot one.
0: Yeah, it is a hot one, for sure. Smooth. Good lord. It's uh, such a it's, like, a... it's
1: the believe factor, right? Like, of course, yeah. like, it's believe that gets us to this conversation, but, yes. like believe wasn't heavily rotated on MTV but it's a global smash.
0: Right? Well and also like, it was on VH1 all day. Oh yeah. <laughs> like all it wasn't you're right it wasn't a big MTV hit. MTV was like they weren't super interested in that at all. They had their, you know, teen shit and they weren't dealing with, you know, 50 something share at the moment. And It's a
1: song about like jaded love of course teenagers didn't get it right (laughs) Right. but it
0: was like and also I watched as we know a lot of VH1 in that era and like VH1 fully gave itself over to share that year the way they gave it themselves over to Fleetwood Mac in 19 or in uh, 1997 so yes God bless you VH1 okay all right
1: now I am officially done talking about music (laughs) okay should we move on to the IMDb game let's all right explain the IMDb game to our listeners
0: Sure thing uh, every week we end our episodes with the IMDB game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDB says they are most known for if any of those titles are television or voiceover work we mention that up front after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles years as a uh, release years as a clue if that is not enough it just becomes a free-for-all of hints that is the IMDB game fantastic
1: would you like to give her guess first um I'll guess first okay. So for you, I have chosen one thing we did not mention in discussing Cher and Lily Tomlin is that they are both former co-stars before this movie. They were both in Robert Altman's The Player. Yes. Or is Lily Tomlin in there? I think so. Either way, I was thinking about Cher playing Cher in uh, The Player. Yes. So I went through the sea of stars who play themselves in the player. Yes. And I pulled out for you, Mr. Jeff Goldblum. Mr. Jeff Goldblum. That reminds
0: me that I texted you earlier this week and I said it's an absolute crime that Lily Tomlin isn't in *Predator* because she should be. Like, I know it's insane that she's not. All right. So you're giving me Jeff Goldblum? Is that what you said? Jeffrey Goldblum. Jeffrey Goldblum. All right. Well, it seems impossible that the list would not include his two big 90s blockbusters, which were Jurassic Park and Independence Day. Correct and correct. All right. I'm hesitant to include The Lost World in there for now, even though he's probably first building in that, so there's a chance but I'm putting a pin in that for the moment. Now, the question of Thor Ragnarok looms large. It is recent. It is big. He was very featured in it, but he's still probably a good six to eight rungs down that He's the and credit in that, I'm pretty sure. But I don't know how they would deal with that on an IMDb cast list. Okay. Am I stalling? Maybe. Because I'm going to dip
1: back into the 80s for a second, and I'm going to guess The Fly. David Cronenberg's The Fly. All right. Spectacular film. No pressure. This could be your third perfect score in a row.
0: Motherfucker. Okay. No pressure, he says. All right. So, Lost World is a Possibility. Ragnarok is a possibility. What am I forgetting, though? From that, like, post-Independence Day, Jeff Goldblum, like, all of a sudden, he's a big, major, like, leading man in things. What did that lead to? What did that lead to?
1: Um, all right. I'm it led just... to, like, what, do, what does he do commercials for? Travelocity or something? You know something. the voice. Yes. Yeah,
0: something like that exactly. All right, I'm just going to say I'm going to downshift. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to say The Lost World Jurassic Park.
1: I'm very sorry you have broken your streak. Damn it. All right. No one watches The Lost World?
0: I well, that's why I was hesitant. It's all but it's on television a lot. All of those Jurassic Is Park it? movies are on television a lot. Yes. Ah. One and three more often than two, but two is still there. All right. Um, Thor Ragnarok. Three because they can get the rights real cheap for it. Yeah. I'm guessing Thor Ragnarok. I am here to ask you to let me guess
1: Thor Ragnarok. I am sorry. It is not Thor Ragnarok. You're going to be mad about this one. Your year is 2014.
0: Oh, is it uh, Jurassic World? No. He's not in that one, is he?
1: he's in
0: he's in the he, one after that for he's like in the a garbage
1: scene. scene i mean i know that jurassic world's not very good but the sequel's even worse yeah and he's, in,
0: he's that. in that for like a scene 2014 2014 oh oh is it uh um the grand budapest hotel
1: secret uh imdb game heavy hitter yes. the grand, budapest, grand hotel. budapest hotel
0: it is very easy for me to forget that he's in that because so many people are in that movie yes and i didn't like it as much as most people did me either thing all right all right so uh, my streak of uh three perfect games is broken but at least i got it in in a decent uh, amount of time okay all right so for you I mentioned, of course, the star-studded Franco Zeffirelli, Jesus of Nazareth uh, film, and the first actor you went for for that uh, did play Mary Magdalene, and that and that is Anne Bancroft, and I was like, uh-huh. hey, we've oh. never done Anne Bancroft for the IMDb game before, so why the don't legend. we? The legend.
1: May she rest. Yes, may she rest. Well, The Graduate.
0: Yes, The Graduate.
1: Uh, the Miracle Worker.
0: Yes, The Miracle Worker, her Oscar win agnes of god no she was nominated for an oscar for that but not agnes of god okay if you're gonna yell at me because nobody watches the lost world i'm going to yell at you because nobody nobody talks about agnes of god anymore
1: i pulled up uh who did i pull up to do a potential imdb game for you and agnes of god was there well, it's either got to be Jane
0: Fonda or Meg Tilly, and I don't know Maybe why you it was would Meg Tilly. be mean enough to give me Meg Tilly for the IMDb game. Please don't do that <laughs> in the future. It's the big um, chill and Agnes of God and then whatever the fuck. Like, who knows? The Elephant Man. Okay. Yes. Anyway, we're not doing Meg Tilly. We're doing Anne Bancroft, not Agnes of God. Elephant Man. Oh, you guessed Elephant Man. I'm sorry. I yeah. thought that was a Meg Tilly joint that you were uh, suggesting. Well, no, not-, n- not the Elephant Man
1: damn it okay what are my years
0: all right so your years for ang and bancroft are 1977 and 1998 77 the turning point the turning points yeah most okay. nominated non-winning uh, uh oscar film of its time
1: 98 so late stage and bancroft She's somebody's mother in keeping the faith, but I think that's in the 2000s. I believe that is actual 2000. Yes, it is. Oh, wait. She's the, uh, I know what this is uh, Alfonso Corrance. She is the weird lady in Great Expectations. She is the weird lady in Great Expectations. She's what? Like, because they changed everybody's name, so
0: she's supposed to be uh, Miss Havisham, but uh, they changed all the characters' names, right? Because it's indeed. It's Finn and uh, Estella instead of whoever it is. Yes, it is Great Expectations. The other one I noticed as I was sort of perusing Anne Bancroft's thing is I forgot that she's the like she's like the secretary of she wouldn't be like the Secretary of State, but she's like a senator or whatever in GI Jane. She's the one who like uh-huh. uh, wants to like make hay about uh, about Demi Moore's character in uh, GI Jane. She's sort of the the, po- the politician uh, pulling strings in that movie. Interesting. She didn't make very many 1990s movies, actually. She definitely made How to Make an American Quilt, because we talked about that. She's really good in Home for the Holidays. Jodie Foster's Home for the oh, Holidays. Oh, God.
1: I sh- uh, well, I mean, I always say this whenever I'm like, oh, that, duh, I should have guessed Home for the Holidays. I probably would have. Also,
0: she's yet another reason why, I keep saying I want to watch Malice again, and I really do, and, like, she's in Malice, so, like truly what is my problem it's probably (laughs) because it's not streaming for free anywhere and like yeah it should be put netflix put malice on your lineup challenge like that is uh what i'm saying or hbo uh hbo max add malice please that cast george c scott and bancroft bb newworth peter gallagher gwyneth paltrow and then of course bill pullman nicole kidman alec baldwin what a great cast.
1: spectacular all right i think that's our episode if you want more of this had oscar buzz you can check out the tumblr at this had oscar you should also follow our twitter account at had underscore oscar underscore buzz joe where can our listeners find more of you hey you can find me on twitter at joe reed reed spelled r-e-i-d
0: you can also find me on letterboxd as joe reed reed spelled the exact same way
1: And uh, just like Jesse James, I am on Twitter, (laughs) at Christy File, that's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Kevin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, now including Spotify. Five Star Review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so if you love us, we want to know, how can we tell that you love us so? It's in your review. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. Shoop, 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 shoop. No matter how hard I try